So throughout history, certain enemies of the people of God have been seeking to stop the spread of Christianity, and they've always resorted to the same tactic, and that is to go after the Christians' Bibles. We see this from the very beginning of the Christian church. There was a Perhaps one of the the earliest, greatest persecutions of the church was in 300 AD under a Roman emperor named Diocletian, and he released something called the Edict Against the Christians, and it ordered Christians not to gather for worship. It ordered the seizing of their property in places of worship, the, the seizing of their money and the treasuries of the church. It caused former freed Christian slaves to be once again uh, enslaved. It, caused de- it, it called for death for any non-cooperation, and of course, it called for the turning over and burning of Christian scriptures. And then in the Middle Ages, you had men like John Wycliffe and William Tyndale who sought to translate the Bible into the tongue of the people. Well, Tyndale was condemned as a heretic and burned at the stake for his work, and John Wycliffe, though he died before being executed, was tried after his death, and his bones were dug up and burned uh, because he, des- he desired to translate the Bible into English. And then today, it's still the same. In North Korea, anyone who reads the Bible will face imprisonment, death, or torture. In Somalia, to own a Bible or to even practice the faith is illegal. In Morocco, to carry a Bible that's been translated into the Arabic language is against the law. And in Libya, giving someone a Bible or teaching someone the Word of God is illegal. You see, these these anti-Christian dictators recognize something that many Christians today do not, and that is that the gospel of Jesus Christ spreads through the reading and the preaching of God's Word. And so if you want to, if you want to stomp out the Christians from among you. You go after their Bibles. And what is sad is that much of the Christian church here in the West, at least, is in a way voluntarily doing this. You know, though we, we have plenty of Bibles, we could all probably go home and pull all the Bibles out from our, sel- our, our shelves and fill a, a coffee table with them. You know, how often do we actually read them? Or though many pastors will walk up with the Bible to the pulpit, how many are actually expositing the Word of God and teaching the Word of God? And this is really killing the church in Canada. And if you look at any denomination or church that has spiraled into liberalism or heresy, what is almost always the first thing to go? It is the lack of belief in the authority and inerrancy of God's Word. It's a bowing to the cultural norms rather than a bowing to Scripture. And it's just like the first sin in the garden. Satan comes up and he says, did God really say? And Adam and Eve questioned the truthfulness of God's Word. And so then how do we, by God's grace, not fall into the same trap of the devil that tells us the Word of God is not relevant, the Word of God is not important? Well, this morning we're going to be looking at our second mark of a healthy church. Last week, last week we looked at the first mark in that the church is called to gather for worship. We have been redeemed for the purpose of worshiping our God and Savior. And this week we'll be looking at 
one of the main things that we are called to do when we gather to worship, and that is to preach the Word of God, the second mark of a healthy church. It preaches the Word of God. And so you can turn your Bibles to 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3, where you're looking at verses 14 uh, to, to, verse, uh, to chapter 4, verse 5. As a quick uh, aside, uh, as we're talking about preaching the Bible, reading the Bible, I'd encourage you all uh, to bring your Bibles with you to church. It's great to hear somebody else read the Word of God, but it's even greater to, to look down and to read it yourself. And so I'd encourage you uh, that if, if you're not, that you, that, you would, that you should do that, and that will be a blessing for you. And then you can hold me accountable uh, if I ever preach something contrary or against the Word of God. And so let me read God's authoritative, inerrant, inspired Word this morning, starting in verse 14 of chapter 3. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and, and His kingdom, to preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebu- rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. So this morning's sermon has three points that we're going to be looking at. Uh, The first two points deal with the attributes of the Word of God, the first section here of of Paul's writing. And then the last point deals with, if this is true of the Word of God, how then do we respond as a church to uh, these truths? Before we get into that, I want to quickly get us up to speed on the the context of 2 Timothy. We're not studying through 2 Timothy as a church, and so uh, it's helpful to know the context if we want to really understand what Paul is saying here to the young Timothy. And so, Paul, he's in prison. He's at the end of his life. Um, this letter is really a, an emotional letter, and, and he, he must have heard that Timothy is dealing with some trouble uh, in the church that he's pastoring in Ephesus. And so, he writes this letter to Timothy, and one of the things he's addressing is these false teachers that have arisen within Ephesus. And in chapter 3, verse 8, Um, Paul compares these false teachers to the magicians in Egypt who went and opposed Moses, who opposed the truth of God. And then in verse 13, he says, you know, because of their abandonment of the truth, they're not only themselves deceived, but they're deceiving others with their teaching and with their views. And so in our passage, then Paul is in a way saying to Timothy, you know, this is what they are doing 
But this is what a faithful minister of the gospel should be doing. This is what you should be doing. And so that's why he, in verse 14, starts off his, um, his argument with, with but. And so these people are doing this, but this is what I want you to be doing. And so that's the context of our passage this morning. And now we'll get into the first point that he's making here. And the first point is the authority of God's Word. The authority of God's Word. Look at verses 14 to 16. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from who you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which is uh, the, the Bible, the Old Testament, uh, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And so we see here from these verses that Paul's command for Timothy is that he continue in the same way that he has continued from childhood. And we know that Timothy's parents, his, his mother and his grandmother, were real women of God. You know, they, they taught Timothy the Scriptures. He's been learning these from childhood at a young age. He joins uh, with Paul in ministry. And Paul tells him to continue in this, that he might be a man who is a, acquainted and immersed in the Word of God. You know, unlike the false teachers who have abandoned the Word, Timothy is called to continue his learning and believing of God's Word. And the reason why is because of what Paul says in verse 16, that all Scripture is breathed out by God. Now, we've probably heard this verse before. We've probably quoted it to people before. And sometimes we don't recognize that this is an extraordinary claim that is being made here. That word, breathed out by God, means that the Scriptures are the, the very words that come from the mouth of God. The Almighty God has spoken to us, and He's spoken in the form of His Word. And so though the Bible was, was written by men and written over thousands of years, written on three different continents, ultimately the Bible is not primarily written by men, but its author is the living God. Think of it like a written proclamation from the king. A king makes a written proclamation to go out to all of his kingdom, and though he himself is probably not the one that is writing, he's dictating it to a, a scribe, that word in, in the written proclamation is the binding word of the king that all in the kingdom must obey. And the same is true with the written word of God. You know, to hear the voice of God is not any more special than to read the Word of God. This is the Word of God breathed out by God. We hold in our hands what God has said to us and communicated to us, and therefore it is binding upon us. And notice what Paul says. He says, all Scripture is God-breathed. And so that means that if you open your Bible and turn to any page in the Bible, that is the Word of God. Old and New Testament, all of Scripture. There have been people throughout history who have tried to deny this, saying that only certain parts of the Bible are inspired and the Word of God for us today. Maybe you've heard of uh, people who call themselves red-letter Christians, and they're referring to, in some translations of the Bible, 
the words of Jesus are in red letter. And therefore, those are the words that we are to follow. Those are the most important words of the Bible. We need to worry about them, worry about the red letters. And so they'll say things like, you know, Jesus never talked about homosexuality. Or Jesus never talked about abortion. Or Jesus never talked about transgenderism. And so we shouldn't talk or care about these things. We should care about what Jesus cared about and talked about. And really, apart from that just not being true, Jesus says he created them male and female. He talks about marriage being between a man and a woman. They're also missing one key point. And that is that all Scripture is God-breathed. And if you affirm that Jesus is God, he is therefore the one who has breathed out all of the Bible. And so when Leviticus says, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman, it's an abomination. Those words were written by Moses, but inspired by Jesus. And so yes, Jesus does have a lot to say on these topics. All Scripture is God-breathed. And because of this, Verse 16 says that all Scripture, therefore, is profitable for teaching, for reproof, and for correction and training in righteousness. That is, all of God's Word provides value to us. Now, some passages may be more impactful than others. I've said multiple times from up here in the pulpit, this is my favorite psalm, or this is my favorite chapter. This is one of the greatest uh, pieces of writing that we have. So some passages might be more impactful for us, but all passages are beneficial for the Christian. So when you're doing your Bible reading plan and it's so tempting to skip over the genealogy, don't do it. That is in God's Word for a reason. It's profitable for the Christian. And so all of this then causes us to to come to one main concluding point, and that is that all Scripture, because it is all, is, is is God-breathed, because it is profitable, it is therefore the greatest authority over our lives. Now, there is an, an authority in God's Word that nothing else, nothing, nothing else matches. Scripture is the ultimate authority, and to disobey or to disbelieve any word of Scripture is to disobey or disbelieve God Himself. And so if we are going to believe something as Christians, we believe what the Bible says. If we are going to do something, we do what the Bible says. If the Bible says something is sinful, it is sinful. If the Bible says something is righteous, it is righteous. If we think that something is true, but the Bible contradicts that, then the thing that we thought is false. If we think something is false, but the Bible contradicts that, then the thing is true. If the Bible tells us that our lifestyle needs to change, then we change our lifestyle. The Bible is the ultimate authority against which we test everything. See, God's Word is, is not only true. So we say that God's Word is, is true, but it is truth itself. Jesus says that in, in John 17, verse, 17, verse 17. He says, sanct- he's praying for, for uh, his followers, and he says, sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth. He doesn't just say your Word is true. He says your Word is truth, meaning that God's Word is the standard. It is the standard of truth. Everything else is matched against that. It's like a scale. If you take a scale, uh, a scale is meant to measure the, the weights of things. It's meant to measure whether something is, 
is really truly the weight it claims to be or not. Well, God's Word doesn't get put on the scale. God's Word is the scale, and it measures all claims whether they are true or not. And so there's a few logical conclusions that come from this as a result for, for the church, for our church. And first, mentioned this earlier, the preacher's authority is not from any place within him. The preacher's authority only comes when he wields the Word of God properly. And so I cannot bind your conscience. My words are not inspired, but the Word of God can do that. The Word of God should bind your conscience. And that's why expository preaching is so important, because it emphasizes the authority of the text. And expository preaching simply means that the main point of the passage should be the main point of the sermon. And then it's applied to the believer's life. And so the passage is, is what guides and directs the message, not the message guiding and directing the interpretation of the passage. The authority lies within the text, not within the preacher. And a second conclusion is that we shouldn't just set the Bible off to the side in our evangelism. If the Bible is truly the standard of truth, it can be tempting sometimes to think to ourselves, well, you know, if they don't believe the Bible, then I can't use the Bible when I'm talking to them because they, they don't accept the Bible as the Word of God. But if it is true that the Bible is the Word of God and it is itself the standard of truth, when we set it aside, we're setting aside the truth. And we can't convince someone of the truth if we've already said that it's not the ultimate standard of truth. You know, whether they believe the Bible or not does not affect whether it is true. You know, if I don't believe in gravity, it doesn't mean that I'm, I'm going to float away. If I don't believe in going to the dentist, it doesn't mean that I'm not going to get cavities. You know, whether they believe the Bible or not doesn't mean uh, that it's not true and that we don't tell them the truth of God's Word. And so then, to conclude this first point, the Bible is the inspired, authoritative, inerrant Word of God. And you need to ask yourself as a, as a personal application, do I truly believe that? Do I truly believe that, that this is God's Word that has been given to me and written for me to grow as a Christian? You know, do I live in a way that reflects that that is my belief, that the Bible is my ultimate authority? Do I look to the Word of God for guidance when making decisions? Is, is it the Word of God that that directs me. If I'm confronted with a belief that I have that does not line up with the Word of God, am I willing to change that? Because that is what God's Word says. If I'm walking in a particular lifestyle and God's Word tells me to change that lifestyle, am I willing to submit to that? Is God's Word truly the ultimate authority over your life? And when you read it, is your, is your goal to submit to it? Is your goal to, to find a way around it to say, well, this passage looks like it means that, but it also could mean this, and therefore I can continue on living the way that I want to live. It's God's Word, the authoritative Word of God in your life. Now, moving on to our second point, the second attribute of the Word of God from this passage is that not, not only do we see that God's Word is authoritative as our ultimate authority, we also see the sufficiency of the Word of God. The sufficiency of the Word of God. Look at verse 15 and then again down at 17. 
Verse 15 says, And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And then down in verse 17, That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So we see here that God's Word is able to make us wise for salvation. It's able to make us complete people of God. And it's able to equip us for every good work. In other words, the Bible is really all the revelation of God that is necessary. The Bible is enough for every man, woman, and child of God to be complete and equipped for every good work. You see, in in tandem with the Spirit of God, you don't need anything else on top of Scripture for salvation, for knowing God, for, for trusting in God, and for obeying God. You don't need to be waiting for another, another word from God to do any of these things. Scripture itself is sufficient to equip us. And this is one of the main fighting points between Catholics and Protestants during the Reformation. See, Catholics taught that in order to fully know God and to, to understand His will, one must have both the Holy Scriptures of God and the teachings of the Catholic Church throughout history. But then Protestants came along and said, hold up. See, all that is necessary is the Word of God alone. It was the doctrine of sola scriptura, that the teachings and the creeds of of Christians throughout history are important and helpful for the body of Christ, but the Word of God alone is sufficient for faith and for practice. You You might be familiar with the story of Martin Luther at the Diet of Worms. He was called before the emperor because of the teachings uh, he had been teaching, and uh, he goes to this place where he sits on trial to defend the things that he had taught, and they bring out all of his books before him, Uh, they read to him some of his teachings, and then they tell him, uh, you need to recant and repent of these teachings, or else you're going to be deemed a heretic, uh, which could possibly lead to his death. And so Luther, uh, before making his decision, asked that he might have a night to pray. And he goes and he, he prays in his room, and he comes back the next day, and he stands before them, and he says these famous words that you might know. Since your majesty and your lordships desire a simple reply, I will answer without horns and without teeth, unless I am convinced by Scripture and plain reason I do not accept the authority of popes and councils for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is, either, is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I, can do, I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. See, Luther made a stand there that the Word of God alone is sufficient for the people of God. And to be perfectly obedient in God's sight, what else do we need beside the commands of Scripture? Absolutely nothing. God's Word alone is able to provide us, to make us wise for salvation, to make us complete for every good work. And again, there's a few conclusions that we can draw from this. First, because Scripture is sufficient to equip us, we must not be 
putting extra biblical requirements on people. In other words, if, if the Bible doesn't say something is a sin, either explicitly or implicitly, we should be very careful ourselves saying that it's a sin. God's Word is able to equip us to be perfect before the Lord, and so if it doesn't say something is a sin, then we can't go and say that something is a sin. For example, some things that I've, I've heard called sins would be uh, playing cards or uh, wearing uh, a wedding ring, which I don't have mine on right now, but uh, dancing, uh, drinking in moderation, drinking pop, uh, wearing pants. Um, one's, one's conscience may, may bind someone in their own life in these areas, but unless the Word of God is clear on it, then we should be careful calling it a sin. And so someone who has struggled with uh, drinking alcohol their whole life, to them, maybe going and, and drinking alcohol is a sin. But I think God's Word doesn't explicitly tell us. In fact, there's examples of, of people drinking wine and not in a negative way. Uh, so we, we don't want to be calling something a sin that, that the Lord God has not called a sin uh, himself. And then second, another application from this is that we should always go to God's Word when we're trying to discover what God wants us to think or to do, knowing that, that, that everything that God wants to tell us about a topic, He has told us. Now, that doesn't mean that, that God tells us everything there is to know about a certain topic or a certain decision, but it does mean that He tells us everything He wants us to know about that certain topic or decision. I'll give you an example. I take the question of, who should I marry? Or maybe if, you, if you're past that stage in your life, who should my child marry? Or, or how do we think about this question of, of who, who, it's a big decision in life, who should I marry? Well, the Bible doesn't give us a direct answer to that. You know, when I married my wife, Hannah, I couldn't turn to a uh, a, a passage in the Bible and read, you should marry Hannah Durston. And so then how do we get these answers from the Bible? Well, we look at what the Bible does tell us about marriage, and we obey what it tells us about marriage, and then we have a little bit of freedom to work within those bounds. And so we be obedient to what God has chosen to reveal us, and then there's freedom within the rest of it. For example, a Christian should not marry a non-Christian. The Bible says not to be unequally yoked. A Christian, the Bible is clear, should not marry a non-Christian. And then God's Word also describes what a godly husband should look like and do. You know, among other things, a, a godly husband should uh, be one who cares for and provides for his family. He shouldn't be lazy sitting around playing video games all day. He should be a man of love who loves his wife as Christ loves the church. He should be a man of integrity and a man of courage and, and many other things that we see describes a man and a husband of God in Scripture. And the same is true for a wife. God's Word describes a good wife as someone who is, if the Lord blesses her with children, someone who, who takes good care of her children and raises them well, who watches over the affairs of her household. She's someone who has a gentle and quiet spirit, willing to be uh, submissive to God's design for her to, to uh, yield and submit to her husband, and many more things. And so then all that to say is that the Bible tells us these things. God has provided for us all that is sufficient to know how to be equipped for every good work, which includes our marriage. And so if you're 
potential wife or potential husband meets those requirements that Scripture gives us, then there is a little bit of freedom. You don't need to be waiting you know, for a word from God saying, I want you to marry this person or I, I don't want you to marry this person. We definitely seek the Lord in, in prayer and He gives us um, peace regarding those things or He sends other people into our lives to instruct us. But ultimately, the Word of God is, is sufficient uh, to provide us answers. And this is, this is true for many other circumstances where the Bible doesn't give us a full and complete picture uh, for some questions. Should I stay in my job or should I switch jobs? Should I move to a, a different place uh, besides the place that I'm in now? Should, uh, for me, should, what should the exact order of service be? Or, or should uh, we sing this many songs before the sermon or this many songs after? There's, there's things that God tells us. He tells us to sing. Uh, he tells us to pray. He tells us to read. He tells us to preach the Word of God. And when we have those things, there's freedom uh, to act within that. What He has given us is sufficient to be perfectly obedient to Him. And so we seek the Scriptures, we trust that God provides us with all that we need, and then we make our decision based upon that. And then the last conclusion from the sufficiency of Scripture is that we should seek to counsel others with the Word of God. If you have someone come to you with need of help, you know, give them the Word of God. Give them the Word of God. That's why biblical counseling is so important. I'm glad that biblical counseling is becoming um, more and more prevalent, that people are going, uh, not, to, not that this is always wrong, but not going to a secular therapist, but first trying to, to work this out with a biblical counselor who can instruct them in the Word of God, which is sufficient for them. And we are called to be, you know, counselors to one another, instructing one another, helping one another with the Word of God. Would that be someone comes to you with struggles with anxiety or struggles with anger, struggles with, you know, addiction or marriage problems or parenting, all of these things, God has, has told us that what we need, that, that He has given us all that we need to obey Him in those areas. And He's able to do that through His Word and through His Spirit uh, to help us grow in them. But in order to do that, it's important that we know that we must be people of the Word. We need to know our Bibles. We need to be reading our Bibles. We need to be meditating on them memorizing them so that when someone does come to us for help, we can counsel, instruct, build them up with the Word of God, which is sufficient. And so then we see in this first section of these first two points that Paul commands Timothy to hold high and to value the Word of God because it's both authoritative and sufficient for the believer, able to make us wise for salvation and complete before God. And so here at Evergreen, we want to be a healthy church. We need to be doing the same. We need to be unquestionably holding to the authority and sufficiency of the Word of God without compromise. Without compromise. And this leads to the third and final point of our sermon. Because God's Word is authoritative, because God's Word is sufficient, the command then for the church, for the pastor, is to preach the Word of God to preach the Word of God. Look at verses 1 and 2 from chapter 4. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing in His kingdom, preach the Word. Preach the Word. Paul gives Timothy this charge. Preach the Word of God. 
and he gives him an eschatological reminder you know, that the Lord Jesus is going to come, and he is going to judge and hold Timothy to account for what he teaches and whether or not he teaches the Word of God. James talks about how teachers and preachers will be held to a stricter standard on Judgment Day, and one of those standards is going to be whether or not they were obedient to the command to preach the Word of God. And I want to look at four ways, quickly, in which a healthy church preaches the Word of God. And so first, a healthy church preaches the Word all the time. Verse 2 says, preach the Word in season and out of season. That was a, a saying that was used at the time, meaning preach the Word whether it's convenient or not. Now, there's going to be times when it's not always easy to preach the Word of God. See, the Word of God confronts sin, and people don't like when their sin is confronted. You can lose friends over preaching the Word of God. But that is the call of the pastor, and that is the call of, of the Christian to preach the Word of God in season and out of season all the time. Second, a healthy church preaches the Word practically. A healthy church preaches the Word practically. The Word of God is meant to be applied to our lives. That's why Paul uses the words like reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and training in all righteousness. So the Word of God is not merely imparting some intellectual or philosophical knowledge. The Word of God has power to change our lives. It's preached to reprove, which means to, to tell you what you ought to do and to convict you to become more aligned with that. The Word of God should be preached to rebuke. See, in those times when we fall into sin and fail to uh, keep in step with the Word of God, it confronts us in our sin. It tells us where we failed, and then by God's grace, it leads us to the cross of Jesus Christ in repentance and, and for mercy and grace. And then it is also preached to exhort, which means to help and to encourage and to comfort. You know, that Greek word exhort means, or, or the Greek word is parakaleo, uh, and you might know that that is the same word that's used for the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, the, the comforter, the helper. And so the Word of God does the same as the Spirit. It helps us, it encourages us, it comforts us with the promises of God. And all this is not just for me, the pastor. You know, we ought to be doing this among ourselves. Hebrews 3 verse 13 says, uh, exhort one another daily that you may not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And so we should be speaking and preaching the Word of God to one another as fellow believers in Christ, whether that's, you know, sending a Bible verse to comfort your brother or sister, or whether that be when someone is in sin, you, you gently and you graciously, you know, point them in the direction of the Word of God, rebuking them in their sin. Or maybe that's stirring on your brother or sister, to good works from the Word of God. See, God's Word has very practical implications in our lives, and we're called to, to use it with one another. That's the second point. And then third, a healthy church preaches the Word when others do not. Healthy church preaches the Word when others do not. Look at verse 3 and 4. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. 
People do not always want to hear the Word of God. Paul calls the gospel a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. To the Gentiles. That's because the gospel is offensive. It tells you that you're a sinner in need of a Savior and that you can do absolutely nothing on your own to change that. And humans in their pride and their sinfulness, they don't like to hear that. That's why the biggest churches are usually not Bible-believing, Bible-preaching churches. And that's not because they're not being faithful to the Word of God. That's because they are being faithful to the Word of God. They're not trying to uh, preach to itching ears who only hear what they want to hear and who are allowed to, to follow after their, their passions. You know, to preach messages that shy away from the hard truths of sin or, or wrath or hell or holiness, it doesn't do anybody any good. It's to appease a crowd so that they can hear what they want to hear and that they can continue on in their sinful and comfortable ways. A healthy church preaches the Word of God when others do not. And then finally, a healthy church preaches the Word of God evangelistically. evangelistically. Look at verse 5. He says, As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. See, an evangelist literally means a preacher of the gospel, a preacher of the gospel. The preacher must be a man who wholeheartedly preaches the gospel in every sermon. You know, J.I. Packer says it well. He says, if one preaches the Bible biblically, one cannot help preaching the gospel all the time. You see, you can be a, a church that reads and even studies the Word of God But if we miss the gospel, we miss the message of the whole Bible. And this is what Jesus says to the Pharisees in John chapter 5. He says, you search the Scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. And yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. See, all Scripture testifies to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so preachers need to be preaching the gospel all the time. You know, don't get caught up in fancy words, cheap gimmicks, and, and pop culture references. Preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul, when describing his ministry, says, And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come to you preaching the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That is the pastor's responsibility to preach the message of the gospel, to preach that we are all sinners deserving the wrath of God for our sin and that we can do nothing on our own to change that, but that God can and that God did by sending His own Son, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh to live a perfect and completely sinless life, to voluntarily go to the cross on our behalf, to take the punishment of God that we deserved for our sin, bearing His wrath in our place, and then being raised from the dead in power, showing that He can truly save us from our sin and from death. And that if anybody who believes in Him will be saved and have eternal life with God forever. That's the message that we as Christians need to stick to, and that's the message that we need to preach day in and day out to the glory of God. Charles Spurgeon, the 
father of preachers, one of the greatest preachers to ever live, said it well. Never was a man blamed in heaven for preaching Christ too much. Outsiders may say, this man harps only upon one string. Well, let the dogs bark. It is their nature too. You go on preaching Christ and Him crucified. Brothers and sisters, if our church ever fails to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of its fullness and all of its glory, I want you to walk right out that door and never come back. And pray for my soul because I will be judged by God if I ever abandon the gospel of Jesus Christ. A church that has abandoned the preaching of the gospel is a dying church that has abandoned its first love. A healthy church elevates the gospel above all things. When people think of Evergreen Chapel, we want them to think that we are, we want them to say that that is a church that preaches the gospel. You know, they may have other problems. They might be working through certain things, but they preach the gospel of Jesus Christ for all that it's worth. And I want you to hold me to that as your pastor. I want you to hold yourselves to that. And by God's grace, we will be a healthy church. Let's pray.